0: This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Join some of the world's foremost environmental law experts as they explore the question, how can the law help us combat the climate crisis? Listen to the series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defending the planet for more. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue.
1: Hello, hello.
0: And Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, everyone. How we doing today?
2: Oh, we're doing okay. I mean, how, how are you two doing?
0: Well, not great, Bill, and I think you should tell our listeners why.
1: <laughs> yeah, tell tell them why Amber and I are upset. <laughs> <laughs> we're just ripping the Band-Aid right
2: off. Yeah. Uh, n- next week will be my... My final episode of the pro se
1: podcast, oh boy it it uh, it had to come sometime. I just always assume it would be Amber who got sick of us first, <laughs> uh, but well,
0: you know we know. have for years on this show when one of us is just on vacation, had this runner of joking about how they were fired and <laughs> yeah. Bill is leaving of his own choice, um, yeah. moving on to no. a new, new position.
1: See, Amber, this was your chance. You could to you should say you I fired landed. You. We yeah. finally landed <laughs> finally made good <laughs> on the threat. Yeah. I mean that, that was that was the way to go. Yeah. I mean, frankly, uh, we're too distraught to like keep the bit straight. So uh, true. yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was gonna say about the the running bit though. I sort of wonder if we've cursed ourselves because it does feel <laughs> like a real loss here. And happy to have you for one more week after today's show, Bill. We'll kind of get into some farewells then, but we wanted our listeners to know as soon as as soon as we could tell them.
2: yeah, we'll save the um the really mushiest stuff for next week <laughs> hopefully uh hopefully nobody's cut cutting onions when we're recording our uh
1: episode next week uh, um, I wouldn't know anything about that uh, I can't speak to that at all uh but we'll see.
2: But, uh, you know, this should not get in the way of us uh, having a terrific show today. We, uh, Alex and I had a uh, great chat with Vin Guerreri, our uh, many-time guest here on the show, and our employment law whiz talking all about the vaccine mandates uh, issued by the Biden administration last week. Very interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, and I also wanted today to get into some of our own original data reporting here at Law360. We've talked about this on Pro Se before. Every year, Law360 puts out what we call the Glass Ceiling Report, and that ranks Mm -hmm. U.S. law firms on their overall representation of women at all levels of the firm. How do we do? I I regret to inform you that uh, there's a very depressing line in one of our stories that sums up the findings. At no level of the typical law firm, non-partners, partners, partners, or equity partners, has the representation of women increased in a meaningful way from last year.
2: Really just not holding back with that one. Just concise, really cuts you.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... uh... It is a bit of a bummer to talk about, to be quite honest, but I do think it's important to keep this top of mind for people, or it will truly never change. Sure, yes. I just wanted to run down some of the highlights, because despite the fact that the numbers haven't moved a lot, our data team does a tremendous amount of work to even have these statistics every year, so I think they're important to to run through. So the first one I wanted to talk about was just top-line numbers. Women made up 37.7% of attorneys at law firms in 2020. That is not up from last year, but that's up from 34% when we first started collecting the data in 2015. So it's a really incremental climb there. It's been six years, but there is a tiny bit of movement. Okay. And just for context, women make up more than half of law school classes. So there's plenty of women they could hire. This isn't a pipeline problem necessarily yeah, at the education age. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was... That the path to the very tippy top of law firms is one of the biggest struggles for women. Equity partnerships are overwhelmingly male. At the largest law firms, the top contenders, the ones that have the most equity partners um, that are female, it's around thirty percent. It seems to get a little bit better at smaller firms. The top mid-sized firms um, report about forty percent of their equity partners are women.
2: But this d- is the very these are the very top. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah.
0: Um, And I did want to shout out a couple of the firms that are actually doing the best because we do have within our reporting a ranking of where firms fall on this. Just want to give a couple of top line ones. Morrison and Forster had the highest percentage of female equity partners. That's 32.3% for them for the biggest firms. And Shouts then
2: you, to Mofo. Yeah. I mean, they're
0: they're doing well in that. And then when you look at mid sized firms, we have one that really stands out. Fragamen came out on top in that mid-size group. They have women representing half of the equity partnership. Oh, okay. So that one's actually great. Um, anything.
1: Yeah. Anything in the way of like diagnostics. I mean, we we always sort of struggle with finding ways to, to talk about this. Um, and obviously this. Last year was an atypical year um for everyone and, and you know the, the law firms were no exception but how did that fit into the into the whole glass ceiling aspect?
0: Yeah. Of it? So the numbers for this year's report are obviously the 2020 numbers we're just crunching yeah. them in 2021. And uh, like you said Alex it was a really weird year and one of the things we kept hearing from people is that one of the reasons for many years has been that women disproportionately leave law firm life and so mm-hmm. that takes them out of the running to move up the ranks. Um, COVID probably made that worse. Um, The tasks of childcare, virtual schooling, a lot of that fell very heavily on the shoulders of women. Um, And so that may have contributed to even more of them deciding big law is just not for them anymore. So that's one, you know, trickle down thing from the pandemic that we're Mm going to be seeing probably for years to come in the numbers.
2: We mentioned some sort of anecdotal you know bright spots, but for the most part, what you explained to us was you know somewhat depressing. Uh, was there any good sort of systemic news that from the report that we can that we can sort of highlight here?
0: yeah, so you know I'm always looking for that silver lining, and so are our reporters and they they did find some things this year coming out of the pandemic that were interesting. And one of it was that there's a ton of tenacity among women that even if they're leaving their traditional big law path, they're finding their own way in the legal industry and not necessarily giving up on being lawyers altogether. So we have some great reporting by Anna Sanders on women who actually opened law firms in the middle of the pandemic. And she interviewed a lot of women for this that had started up firms and Essentially, the people she interviewed said the pandemic provided them with basically the time they needed to reflect on their careers and the way that it was going and also time to make a plan to strike out on their own. So I know the pandemic has been awful for all of us in a ton of ways, but it has given people sort of a reflection period in their careers. And that played out. And the other thing that helped some of these women is that the pandemic really proved that new firms could function without traditional offices And if you don't have to have those traditional offices, it takes away a big burden of a lot of overhead costs and makes it a little more feasible for you to be the head of your own firm. Some of these women who started their law firms also had advice for other people. So since I've given a lot of bleak numbers, I want to give a little little hope out there to to any female attorneys that are listening and feel, you know, really are feeling these bad numbers from from law firms. Um, The first step most of them said to being able to chart your own course is to... Take credit for the good work you're doing at the firm where you are and learn how to market yourself. It's, it's often overlooked that you're just no to the grindstone working really hard as a lawyer.
3: Mm-hmm. But
0: some of being a good lawyer is marketing yourself so you get other clients and then you get recognized wherever you're working. So that was their first big step. And if anybody's listening to this out there and feeling a little stuck at their firm, that is a great thing to think about right now.
2: Okay, thank you, Amber. Uh, for our next story, we are uh, moving on to the media law beat, uh, uh, where we're talking about an appellate court ruling that revived a defamation lawsuit filed by U.S. Representative Devin Nunes uh, against
1: uh, journalist Ryan Lizza. Uh, this is not the Devin Nunes uh, lawsuit about the about the cow that pretends to be him on Twitter. It can be very tough to keep this stuff straight. <laughs> it is a... <laughs> Uh defamation lawsuit, not not the defamation (laughs) lawsuit. Um the the Congressman gets in gets involved in some defamation litigation. What's the deal with this? Well the 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 ruling made waves this
2: week, not just because of the sort of high profile people involved, but also because of what it said about how Twitter can factor into a very
1: important piece
2: of First
1: Amendment and
2: libel law analysis. That
1: sounds that sounds precarious, uh, especially for me. Um, I'm I'm always popping off out there. So uh, break down I am, the. Yeah. I am always worried about about you incurring liability
2: while on Twitter. Well, tell us how this might happen. What's going on in this suit? Um. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Nunes sued uh, Lizza and uh, Esquire magazine, the publisher, Hearst, who owns Esquire, um, in 2019 over an article called Devin Nunez's Family Farm is Hiding a Politically Explosive Secret. Um, So at issue were claims that were made in the article that Nunes and others had, quote, conspired to hide the fact that the congressman's family sold its farm and moved to Iowa, um, as well as there was um, a claim in the story that, that the farm had, or a suggestion in the story that the farm had utilized undocumented immigrant labor. Um, but but last year, a federal judge who was hearing the case dismissed it. The judge said that Nunez had failed to show that Liza had acted with um, so-called actual malice, which mm-hmm. is that the reporter had intentionally lied or had acted with reckless disregard for the truth that's if if we're doing the, the media law uh, bingo card that's a that's yeah. a big one um it's the strict standard that was created by the supreme court in the very famous new york times versus sullivan that says public officials if they want to bring libel cases they need to meet this very exacting standard that basically the reporter intentionally was making up this stuff about you um it's designed to insulate uh, you know, the, to give First Amendment breathing space to, um, you know, to prevent these kind of cases from being used to stifle free speech, the judge here, the lower judge here, said that Nunez had had failed to meet that very very difficult standard.
0: Well, you said at the beginning that this suit got revived. So, what exactly did the appeals court say?
2: So, the Eighth Circuit uh, ruled this week, and and like you said, Amber, uh, it revived Nunez's case. Um. It affirmed certain aspects of the lower court that had dismissed the case. But for starters, the appeals court said that Liz's article might amount to what is called defamation by implication. Uh, so the, the the finding here was that based on the way these the, the story's facts were arranged within the story, um, uh, the court said that a, quote, reasonable reader could draw the implication that Representative Nunez conspired to hide the farm's use of undocumented labor, um, which, uh, of course, the, the congressman says is false. Uh, more importantly, the the court here said that Nunes might be able to show that Liza did, in fact, act with actual malice, this this key hurdle uh, imposed by the Supreme Court. Um, the court ruled that Nunes couldn't show that Liza acted with that kind of awareness when he wrote the original story, but that he might be able to show uh actual malice uh from Lizza when he tweeted out the story a few months later he nunez was in the news and Lizza retweet you know tweeted a link to his story and said i see nunez is in the news here's a story about and gave a very sort of top line of what the article was about so here's how the court's logic goes the court said that by tweeting out the story uh you know, at that point, Lizza had effectively republished it. And by doing so after Nunez had already filed the current lawsuit, which obviously claimed that the article was defamatory, the court said that Lizza could have known that these claims were false at that point, which would, you know, potentially satisfy this idea of actual malice, this idea that you did this knowing that they were false.
0: Boy, oh boy. I mean, reporters retweet and and uh, each other's work and tweet their own work all the time when a new event comes up where it's relevant again. So how have people reacted to this argument?
2: Yeah, the a lot of First Amendment experts have have been sort of alarmed by this interpretation of uh, the law. Um, the vibe is sort of that this is an expansive reading of what counts as a, a so-called republication for defamation purposes and that it could really weaken this actual malice standard Um Uh, One media law professor you you saw on Twitter called it a, quote, mind-bending interpretation of libel law as it applies to social media. So um, just to sort of go deeper into this, Liza and Hurst argued that there there were these rulings that said that – merely sharing a hyperlink is not to an existing article without adding yeah. anything to it or changing anything does not count as republishing and the lower judge had also said as much um but the 8th circuit rejected that argument and and said it it potentially could amount to the kind of republication which would then you know re- reopen this question of actual malice some experts think that the um, the implications of that holding could be f- you know enormous because critics say that it would allow the mere existence of a pending lawsuit to prohibit any sharing of an article on social media the logic is that you know anyone who shares it could potentially be acting with actual malice since they're on notice that somebody who filed this lawsuit thinks it's defamatory so would that lead to lawsuits against social media users people mm-hmm. with particularly big followings you know are they supposed to know that that it just is um it's it is a Different reading of these issues than than we've seen thus far, and people are concerned that it could potentially stifle free speech. We'll we'll have to see as this goes forward if um, the full en banc Eighth Circuit decides to do something or SCOTUS agrees to hear the case. Um, It could also, you know, if none of that happens, it will go back down and and these claims will be um, a a fuller record will be developed. But a very interesting development um, in the world of media law and depending on who you ask, uh, a somewhat alarming development.
0: Once again, this week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Join some of the world's foremost environmental law experts as they explore the question, how can the law help us combat the climate crisis? Listen to the series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defending the planet for more.
2: President Joe Biden ordered sweeping new federal vaccine requirements last week in an effort to halt the spread of COVID-19's Delta variant, potentially impacting as many as 100 million American employees in both the public and private sectors. Here to walk us through what the new order means is Vin Guerrero, Law360's senior employment law reporter. Welcome back to the show, Vin. Good to see you guys. Happy to have you, many-time guest. So let's, just to get us sort of situated here, if you could give us and give the listeners a very brief sketch of what exactly the president did last week, um, you know, what are these actions that he took and and what is the sort of top
3: line impact? Of course. Uh, so there are a couple of different things here. The 30,000 foot view is every employer over 100 employees is going to have to have a either vaccine or weekly testing mandate in place. Um, I should specify that's every private employer. If you're a federal employee, the rules are actually a little bit even more stringent than that. Um, President issued a couple of executive orders and, and there was some other stuff mixed into kind of a broader plan where federal employees will have to be vaccinated. They don't have a weekly testing alternative there are some healthcare facilities. If you receive Medicare or Medicaid funding, they have their own mandate sort of attached to them. But the one that is going to impact by far the largest number of employees is going to be the private employer mandate for companies with over 100 people. And they do get a weekly testing option if employees choose not to get vaccinated. So, yeah, I mean, that that's sort of. Gives us the broad strokes of
1: basic eligibility, but I know that the devil is so often in the details, especially with sweeping executive actions. Let's talk about—I mean, beyond just you know private companies with over 100 employees—that's not as simple as it sounds. Can we talk a little bit more? A, a little bit more about who is actually covered by these mandates?
3: Yeah, and that's one of the problems that employers are facing at the moment because a lot of the details haven't come out yet. So uh, there's still a lot of questions, and one of the big ones is. How do you even count to get yeah. to hundred employees? Um, I think that 's kind of what you 're referring to what you 're getting at mm-hmm. and it it 's not at all as easy as it seems full time <laughs> it doesn 't it seem easy then nothing <laughs> nothing is out in our world is easy um, a full time employee obviously they count towards any any headcount that an employer is going to have to conduct to figure out if this applies to them. Where things get a little bit trickier is when you start getting into the realm of, for example, part-time employees. Do Does a part-timer count the same as a full-timer for counting purposes? What do you do with contractors? If it's a company that uses a lot of independent contractors, or yep. uses third-party people to, uh, to perform different tasks. How do they get factored into the mix? So It's not as simple as just saying, you know, we have 100 employees and and that's the end of it. This is going to apply. What if you have 50 full time employees, but you have 100 various contractors on staff or or, or, there's any number of different variations that you could probably think of. But what employers, what some of the lawyers I spoke to are saying is one of the things they want to see when the actual text of the rule comes out yet. There's no there's no. All the Biden administration's put out so far as sort of a top-line yeah. uh, requirement. Mm-hmm. But the actual details, the actual text, any accompanying guidance, anything like that, we haven't gotten that yet. So one of the things they're going to be looking for is if there's any guidance as far as the way that employees are counted and, and what goes into uh, the definition of an employee for purposes of that 100-worker threshold.
2: Another complex question here I know is – this idea of um, the, the alternative to a vaccine is that you can implement weekly testing. But obviously, that is an expensive process. And I'm sure employers are trying to figure out, you know, if I'm forced to do this, does the government pay for it? Do I pay for it? Do I force my employees to pay for it? What's the sense on, on how that will all work
3: out? Yeah, and that's one of the trickiest parts to this. And I don't know if there's a clear answer yet. Um, a lot of it is going to come down to what the rule It's going to be a rule coming from the occupational safety and health administration. So what the actual fine print of that looks like and what the actual wording of that looks like, um, as far as testing, that's probably going to end up being the trickiest part for employers to deal with. You mentioned a couple of things, uh, as far as who pays for it, nobody really knows, um, it could be employers that have to shell out for it, which is a lot of money. If you have, uh, you know, any significant number of workers in your workforce, that have to go get a test done once a week, that you know, that could run you up a, a pretty hefty bill along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a question as to whether employees are going to get left having to pay for it. There's a question of whether it falls to a health insurance provider right. or some kind of insurance plan, whoever. Uh, administers the health benefits at a particular employer, whether they get left holding the bag with any of it. So it's not entirely clear either who pays for the test itself. And there's even a whole separate question of whether employees have to get paid for the time that it takes for them to get a test. If you're an employee and you go on, you get into a routine, you go on Sunday night and you get your test done for the week, you know, is that half hour, 45 minutes, however long right. it takes? Are you on the Is clock? Is that yeah. compensable time? Are you on the clock? If it's, if it's a mandate, you have to do it as a condition of employment. There are good arguments for why it would be uh, compensable time, but a lot of those details haven't really gotten worked out yet.
2: I mean, I imagine that also there will be tricky questions about how one would track the, whether people are getting these tests, and and that
3: raises its own series of problems, right? Yeah, on top of who has to pay for everything. Um, it, a lot of lawyers, uh, they're not shy about saying this. Um, it's going to be an administrative headache, especially if there are a lot of unvaccinated people in a workplace. If you think about it, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, if an employer is dealing with, you know, 50 unvaccinated people or hundred unvaccinated people in their workforce. That's a hundred different tests that they're going to have to collect every week. A um, hundred different people that they're going to have to make sure got their test. They're going to have to make sure that, I mean, that information is medical information. The uh, The EEOC federal uh, equal employment opportunity commission has made it clear that vaccine documentation That stuff has to be kept separate from a person's regular employment file. So that's another step of the process that employers are going to have to do. And uh, even if there's a positive test, what do you do with those workers? Uh, How do you – they can't come into the workplace, so you're going to have to figure out an alternative arrangements. The ones that test negative, you're going to have to make sure that they adhere to all of the distancing and masking rules and all of the other uh, you know, protocols that we've all gotten used to over the past year and a half. So I, there are a lot of steps to this process beyond just, you know, workers giving a piece of paper over to their employer every week and washing their hands of it. And, and you know, I got my test. I'm good. There there are a lot of administrative steps that employers are going to have to follow to make sure that the testing process is organized and, and that people are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing.
1: So there's clearly no shortage of things that people are going to be looking at as far as compliance when we see some actual sort of binding legal uh, or rather more detailed text here. Um, We'll certainly keep our eyes peeled on that. But we would be remiss if we didn't ask you our favorite question, the question that drives pro se. Let's talk about legal liability. Now, this, I think, is also probably going to be dependent on some specifics. But I know you talk to people about potential vulnerabilities for lawsuits here. Um, This is obviously a very sort of hotly contested issue. Um, could could this lead workers to sue for discrimination? Uh, what kind of legal challenges could be in the offing here once this uh, uh, gets up and running?
3: Yeah, and it's probably likely that there will be legal challenges. It'd be pretty surprising mm-hmm. if there weren't well, that's in great. some way, shape, or form. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> great for you guys. You'll have yeah. plenty to, plenty well, of to discuss. Well, you too, Ben. Let's be real here. Um, we already have one lawsuit. It came from the uh, Attorney General of Arizona, but again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but since a lot of the details haven't been released publicly yet, it's still uh, too early for anyone to challenge the actual uh, requirements or the actual specifications of the rule. Um, the AG of Arizona took a shot at challenging the idea of a mandate itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that lawsuit was just filed, you know, a day or two ago, it tried to tie the mandate with, you know, federal immigration policy. And it's got a lot of, uh, the general argument there is that workers will have to be subject to a mandate, but, uh, undocumented people who come through, uh, come from over the border, come from another country, they don't have any mandate attached to them. So mm-hmm. tries to kind of, uh, you know, raise equal protection, mm-hmm. uh, an equal protection argument, whether that holds up in court, you know, who knows? That's not for that's not for me to say that can go. Who knows how that ends up? But uh, there could be other lawsuits once a rule is actually issued uh, relating to, you mentioned discrimination. There could be potentially claims that, you know, a testing policy affects uh, one particular group of people, right. uh, you know, for example, a, a, a minority class of people within a workforce differently than another group of people. So, you know, it's all speculative at this point, but there are attorneys that are at least kind of raising these issues and flagging them for employers to at least be aware of. Yeah. Whether they come to fruition or not, you know, who knows? There's still a lot of steps to go in the process before it even gets to that point. Uh, whether the mandate even makes it to the point of, uh, you know, makes it pass any court challenges that could be issued as soon as it is released you know, that's a whole nother story completely. So there's still a long way to go and we'll see how everything ends up.
2: We will indeed. Then, uh, as always, it was a great chat. We appreciate you coming by anytime. Thanks buddy.
0: Our show is something offbeat, and this week we're going to use this spot to actually wrap up the Pro Se Movie Club.
1: If you think we're above self-promotion one last time, you are wrong. <laughs> uh, we are the, the, the Pro Se Movie Club is technically over, but you will hear about it once more from us. Guys, and it's always timely, you know? These episodes of
2: Pro Se, they're tied to the news. You yeah. can go back and you can listen to the, the Pro Se Movie Club whenever you want
1: to. Listen Those to movies it. are not <laughs> changing. Listen so- to it at Thanksgiving with your family. It'll be great.
0: Beyond the self promotional aspect, I really did want to have this conversation with you guys just to run through a couple things that after you watch all of them is sort of like global questions. And so I just wanted to start with a real easy one. Of the nine movies we watched, what did you like the best?
2: You know, I was thrilled that we did uh, Big Daddy just because um, <laughs> oh, you know it involves so many attorneys. It had a it had a, a climactic court scene. The FCPA gets a shout out. We all love that. Sure, um, you know what? No,
0: Bill? I know that you are leaving us soon but if we ever do another batch of these maybe we'll have you back on as a guest host to talk Big Daddy. So I just... didn't
1: agree to that at all but yeah sure maybe we'll <laughs> talk about it.
2: I think that's only fair. I would say my favorite movie that we watched I think was Michael Clayton. Um it just you you rewatch it and it's it it goes beyond. I mean I think it it was the most sort of Law 360 movie that yeah. we watched. It yeah. dealt a with, point. you know, big corporate white shoe, big law, and it dealt with it in... It, it It wasn't this, like, stirring courtroom scenes or anything like that. It was the the mucky stuff that happens in a firm. Um, but it just was an amazing movie. Yeah. Just great yeah. performances all around. I, I think we... We we ran into with that show where all of us were sitting around before sort of game planning how to talk about it, and we had to really truly say to ourselves like, we can't just sit here and say, "Oh my god, this movie rocked." Yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. Time.
1: <laughs> It'll be the Chris Farley show that way. I think we did an okay job, um, but uh, I mean, I love Michael Clayton. That's certainly high in the running. I mean, pound for pound, I would probably say my cousin Vinny. I I I think that, I think that comedy is like always the best lens to look at. Any aspect of society, whether you're talking about the legal profession or, uh, you know, politics or whatever. I think it just, you know, once is tragedy, once is farce and how and how all that goes. Um, But I love it. I think it's I think it's I think it's a classic for a reason. And I enjoyed talking about not only why the movie is so great, but why it has such a sterling reputation, uh, both for its accuracy, which we delved into and just like how it almost functions as like a sort of like tutorial of how to do criminal law. Um, you know, it's a taught, you know, taught in law schools and all things like that. And it's uh, it's never uh, uh never a bad move to revisit that one. I enjoyed that quite a bit. What about you, you guys? They're
0: really still in my vibe because I had <laughs> thought about this and I would have picked both of those movies. It's a little <laughs> bit of a toss up because they're both so good but so different, yeah. Um, so they really represent sort of. The whole range of movie club, in a way. Uh, if I had to narrow it down to just one of the two, though, I think I would barely edge it out for my cousin Vinny yeah. because we spent so much time on this podcast series in particular talking about accuracy, and that one is just so spot on. As a lawyer, it's hard not
1: to love it.
2: Amber, let's let's spin it around, and I'll ask you which
1: movie did you like the least? Not which a- throwing tomatoes at the at at your TV when it was over.
0: I regret to inform you that for me the worst of these movies is Liar Liar. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm just
0: not a Jim Carrey person and it's almost impossible to get over that because so much of the movie is just about letting Jim Carrey be Jim Carrey.
1: Yeah. Um that's yeah, I mean if you don't like Jim Carrey that's going to be a tough sit for you and I think you were you you very admirably uh, talked about it uh, with us anyway, um even though it was uh, not sitting well with you. I um I have to say I really this time I I really didn't j- enjoy A Time to Kill at all. Um as I get further away from it I was like we you know we 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 talked about it on the show. I mean the the composition is just everywhere the 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 adaptation is way too onerous. Um the, the it's got an amazing cast but uh, very muddled on its like very serious subject matter. Um It'll be it'll be a while before I re- I revisit that one again if it if I do at all. I too genuinely disliked A Time
2: to Kill. <laughs> I, I I I think we all I mean I think we all had our challenges with with the yeah. movie. It just you come out of it feeling like you're like what what on earth just happened? Like how could this how could this have been made this way? Uh, you yeah. feel. Yeah, um,
0: I think the but, real problem, guys, was that we had to talk about it after. If I had just done a yeah, rewatch, a it's like a bullet train of a movie. So in the middle of it, I was not hating it. It's when sure. I sat down to think about what to say on our show that it starts to fall apart.
2: Well, and and one could argue that the Devil's Advocate is a worse movie. Uh, oh, in, a, in a lot of ways, but I had so much fun. It is bad it. in a advocate. more fun
1: way. It yeah, fails in more, it, yeah. to the extent it fails, it fails in like extremely interesting and and, and honestly hilarious ways. Um, but yeah.
0: Well, before we, you know, get too much more into the takes of that, I did want to kind of leave us with final thoughts on Movie Club in terms of like, you know, we watched nine legal movies back to back and talked about all of them. So did we learn anything? What is our big takeaway from this project? Um, Do you feel any differently about the law after watching a bunch of these movies in a row? What do you guys think?
1: Uh, I think I feel a little differently about movies, uh, not the law. (laughs) Uh, uh, No, just kind of like what I was saying about my cousin Vinny. It was I think we did a good job of picking enough different types of movies and like different ways to tell a story about the legal profession or the legal process. And it was that like watching it sort of watching them sort of sequentially. And we should note: I've gotten lots of emails and like comments from my friends. Why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? It's not an exhaustive list, people. We just thought these were interesting, but I think it was a pretty good mix, and it really illustrated um, all the different ways that this kind of work, which we cover for our jobs, uh, can manifest itself for the sake of drama. Um, and you know, seeing that sort of panoply uh, was uh, was quite enjoyable to me. I just had a really great time.
2: Hanging out with my friends talking about movies you know, it boy. was such a pleasure to be <laughs> you know to to take what we you know we talk about somewhat seriously every week and really sort of you know relax a little bit. I think the vibe of the of the movie club was more low key and um you know it was it 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 was fun to revisit these movies that um uh sometimes you hadn't seen in years. Sometimes you I mean I, I watch Michael Clayton like once every six months. Yeah, but sure. uh, you know, the big uh, same. Yeah. Um uh and and you know, the all the sort of at times I think overly sincere stuff that we said about some of these movies, I think is is true that they it really does hammer home important the the legal system can be for certain people i mean loving in particular i yeah. think we we really all felt very moved by and very moved by sort of the transformativeness of the um you know what the courts can do and what the legal profession can do and um yeah. to help people in their in their lives so yeah i had a great time um and uh yeah amber what'd you think
0: well bill i totally agree with you had a blast doing it with you guys um one of my favorite work projects we've ever done um My takeaway is kind of similar to yours, only I come at it from being a former lawyer, um, which is, it was just nice to have a reminder in this project that the movies are telling us that there's a lot of different ways to be a successful lawyer. Mm -hmm. So shout out to Elle Woods. She kicked that off in my brain with our first movie. (laughs) Um, But we saw that throughout. I mean, I think there's a character in almost every one of these movies that sort of shows you an example of like, this is a ostensibly good attorney successful at their career, but they're also different. And I really like that as a message Hollywood can give us about the law. You know, they might get some details wrong, but I think they can be really aspirational for little kids out there that are watching movies and thinking about professions. And I know for me personally, um, I watched LA law as a kid. I don't know if I've ever told you guys that, but that planted seeds in my brain about being a lawyer. And I think some of these movies are out there doing that for other people.
1: Well, that's well said. Uh, great great project uh, enjoyed by all. I think that's uh, a good time to uh, call it a show for the week, don't you think?
0: Yeah, sure is. I uh, want to thank you guys for being with me, as always, and also thank a bunch of other people that help our show come together, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Vengareri, and our contributing reporters, Jackie Bell, Anna Sanders, and the entire Law360 data team. They work really hard on that glass ceiling report, so if you're intrigued, head over to our website. That's where you can find it. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano, And if you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review wherever you listen to podcasts, because that really does help other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, like I said, head over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.